Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We trust you completely, uh, well, as completely as we can. And we know we should trust you completely. And in any way our trust is lacking, we pray you would fill it up all the way to be totally dependent on you as we approach your word, knowing that you are the teacher, that your spirit is the teacher, that we are dependent on your spirit to do work here. I cannot, as a man, manufacture any good this morning. We need you. So transform our hearts and minds to be like Christ. Chisel away the wickedness chip away at our sinful nature and construct in us a Christ-like character, love, and desire for you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in today's text, we find some uh, practical implications of last week's text. Last week's text told us to give, well, it says, let elders... Who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so that honor is is to be automatically afforded to the elders of the church, the church leaders. And it is to be especially assumed that honor for elders... And let me just clarify, because in case you're like, well, I wasn't here last week, or I don't know what you're talking about last week, that... It is not that these men who are elders are uniquely special or deserve certain treatment or anything of the kind. It's not the men themselves. It's the men when they're in that role. So it's the role itself. God calls men to lead his church and then protects those men and commands the church to provide honor to those men as, not as an honor to that man, but as an honor to God for God's role and structures and authorities in the church. So it is to be especially assumed, that honor is to be especially assumed when congregants, when you see sin in the life of one of your elders. And if you spend enough time around your elders... You're going to see sin in the life of your elders. I remember, um, so I was talking to the, there's a, a pastor in our local area, a man that I love deeply. And he used to work at Bethlehem Baptist Church in the cities, which is where John Piper was the preaching, teaching, senior pastor, lead pastor, whatever, preaching pastor. And uh, John Piper is like worldwide renowned, famous preacher. So when he preaches, thousands of people show up and, um, you know, he's, when we take these men who are so well known for preaching, we, it's very easy for anyone, even people who get it, to kind of elevate those people. I remember when I met John Piper I was like, oh, hi, John Piper. You know, <laughs> so like excited. Like, oh, gosh, I can't believe me. It's so cool. Um, it's hard not to, to feel that. I mean, this is a guy who, for me, has like trained me theologically without even knowing that he's training me for years. And so uh, 
I remember this local pastor who used to work there. And when they hired him, they said to him, we know that you're here because of Piper. That's why everyone wants to work here. And he goes, just so you know, here's some things you should know about John Piper. And he proceeds to tell them things that maybe aren't known by the majority about him. And then someone asked, so this is what my friend, local pastor, is telling me. And he says, someone asked John Piper, how do you, like, manage or deal with all of the expectation that's put on you that you're, like, this super amazing, like, almost perfect man? Because if all you ever hear from somebody is what they say at the pulpit, they probably sound like they're pretty awesome, right? Like, you know, you come up here, you preach the word, you preach the gospel. That's all people hear like, wow, that guy knows a lot or he, he's really smart. Oh, and he understands what righteousness is and he talks about it. And, you know, and it's like pastors don't typically come up here and just be like, oh, I'm a mess. Oh, my life's falling apart. Like, you know, we see the best of a pastor at the pulpit typically. And so he was asked, how do you do, how do you manage, how do you deal with this common expectation that you are just greater than other people? And he says, I just talk to the people in my life, and you should too, and they'll tell you what a mess I am. Now, that's not a quote, but that's essentially the message. And he's just, his perspective is like, I'm far from perfect. And this is a man that thousands of young pastors look up to and listen to and follow. And it's, it's very easy for any man Remember, Christian and I were talking many times about like, we don't, I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be well-known. I don't want to be popular. I don't want to be renowned. I don't want to definitely not be on my current context here in the local church because it is scary out there, especially now with social media and phones and all that stuff. It's like anything you say, anything you said 30 years ago can come back at you. Like it's terrifying to be in the public eye. And that's what elders end up being in the public eye, at least in the public eye of their local body that God has called them to lead. And when you're put in that position, you're more exposed, which is exactly why chapter three was written so that elders have to fit a particular requirement for eldership that ensures that when they're put in the spotlight, as their life is examined because they're now public figures in their local church and probably somewhat of a public figure in their community, then they aren't, can't be accused of sin. Because there isn't sin to identify. I'll tell you what happened to me uh, a couple months ago. I got a phone call from a, a, a guy. And this guy calls me to accuse me of sin. And he gave me a a couple of things that he identified as sin, said that I was um, unloving, not merciful, and then a couple other similar type things. Um, And I, and I, my perspective was, oh, well, that's not good. Like, so if, if I'm not being loving and I'm not being merciful, then like, I, what, like, what was I, what did I do that was unloving and, and, and not merciful? Like, what thing did I do? What action did I perform that this sin is associated to? And he couldn't answer. He couldn't answer for me. 
And I asked him, how can you make an accusation without an accusation itself, right? That I'm something without the thing. And looking back and I'm like, well, of course I'm going to get scrutinized more in, in a more intense way because of my role and how my role affects that particular man's life. And my issue with him, which we'll see here in verse 19, is the way he went about that. So I'll come back to that story in a minute, but let's jump into verse 19. So I want to tell you my conclusion of that story, my perspective on that particular thing that happened to me through verse 19. So in verse 19, Paul writes, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul is carrying on from his previous words in verses 17 and 18 about giving double honor to the elders who rule well. And we talked about that double honor and the elders who rule well last week. Given that the church is to exceedingly honor the church elders, one of of the ways that honor is afforded to an elder is that they are not tried on their sin for any and all accusations that are thrown at them. There's a good reason for this qualification that an accusation should only be taken seriously when it is made by two or three responsible witnesses. Much of what the elders do and say and teach and practice requires that they press into your life in a unique way that is intended to develop your spiritual maturity. It is motivated by the elders' love for you, which is motivated by their love for Christ, which is motivated by their command from Scripture to do such things. And as we all know, when an elder presses into your life with the intention of your spiritual growth, growing hurts. Growth hurts. So offending one another with the truth is always a risk. It's always a risk that the elders must take to effectively produce change in your life. Elders have to sit down with you We have to identify your sin and counsel you biblically into more righteous behavior. And because of this risk of offense that the elders are constantly having to face, it is very probable that those who refuse to receive such rebuke or correction from their elders will become disgruntled. So I'm talking about those who refuse to accept it, refuse to hear it, refuse to repent, refuse to believe that they're doing anything wrong. And if you're thinking that's not common, Think again, it happens a lot. And, and just as a caveat, we're not talking about elders walking up to your front door, kicking your front door in, and throwing stones at you for sinning. Okay, We're not talking about harsh shepherding. In, in this context, I, I'm speaking with the assumption that this elder is loving you well when they address your sin. They are taking care of you. They are speaking to you in gentleness. They are approaching you in a wise manner. And they are bringing you to righteousness by revealing sin to you in a loving way. Not in a judgmental way, but in a concerned, care-for-you type of way. Not as condemnation, but as elevation into Christ-likeness. So... The elders have to do that, and when they do it and people refuse to receive it, they can become disgruntled, they refuse to obey, and what they do is they counter the correction they received 
with an accusation of their own back at that very elder as a means to justify their own sin. Now, whether they realize they're doing that or not, it happens, and it happens a lot. And it happens when elders are intentional about your your sanctification being a way to glorify God. And you know where it doesn't happen? You know when that kind of relationship doesn't happen? You know when people don't have to, you know, the, the, the churches in which people don't counter elders with their own accusation because they're disgruntled and refuse to repent. That doesn't happen in churches where elders are not intentional about your spiritual growth. That's where that will happen. Or that's where that won't happen. And so there are, I think, churches in the world that are blindly joyful and satisfied with the condition of their church. Not knowing that there is sin growing in so many of them. And that sin isn't being dealt with or addressed. And obviously, you know, you can't address it all. And certainly not all at once. It's a lifelong process. We're all growing at a particular rate. But the point is, if, if the, the church leadership in a church isn't dealing with any of it, that sin is growing under the surface. The roots are spreading wide. It's infecting all different types of different things in the church. And they just don't see it and they just don't know it. And, and, and the false converts in the church or the immature believers in the church are blindly thinking that everything's okay. And the false converts especially are thinking, I'm okay. Why would I not be okay? Everything's great. My pastor loves me. My elders love me. The church loves me. I love them. I, you know, I go to church every week. Done. Christian life. And no one's pressing into their life to reveal that there is no true conversion. Or, or pressing into the, the immature believer's life and revealing there needs to be growth here. And so the disgruntled response and unrepentance never comes to the surface. And those churches oftentimes, I should maybe say sometimes, actually grow numerically. Which is why we don't count numerical growth as any indication of genuine spiritual growth. But I do believe that with healthy spiritual growth in the church there will be a numerical impact. So please do not think that what I'm saying is if a church is big, it's bad. That is not what I'm saying at all. There are churches that are huge, that are fantastic, okay? So my point is if I don't press into you, here's here's what I'm convinced of. Excuse me if this sounds... Excuse me if this sounds arrogant, okay? I'm convinced that I, and I've said this to some degree many times from this pulpit, I think. I'm convinced that I could, just, just because of my personality maybe, I could be void of the spirit, stand at this pulpit, preach messages that you love to hear. Well, you particularly would probably go, I'm starting to see a problem here. But people would love to hear and gain lots of people. I think that I could probably pull that off to some degree, become very social media minded, put a lot of stuff online, get re- try to get really, you know, get our name out there, get, get my words out there. Let's, let's, uh, 
Let's start a, a regular podcast and let's put some stuff on Facebook and Instagram and whatever else is out there and get people coming in. And I will preach messages that people just love to hear. And we can grow this church. And a majority of the churches in, the, in America or in the world would be like, yeah, that means we're good. And I could totally pull that off. Totally pull that off. Without the Holy Spirit. Just based on, I think... My ability to use this book in a manipulative way with my experience in preaching, I think I could pull that off if I was evil enough. And you got to understand, when I write sermons, I, I, used to, I used to do bullet points for my sermons. What you see now is this is like a manuscript Okay, that's how I write my sermons down. The reason I write it that way is because I need boundaries. And if I don't, right now I'm outside of those boundaries, FYI. This is not in the sermon. <laughs> so I need the boundary of this manuscript to keep me in line because I know my propensity to go off track. Now, by the grace of God and hopefully by the power of his spirit, those off track moments are his prophetic purpose for the sermon that day. But I am very aware of how close to that line I can get where it's not the Holy Spirit. And so I do this to keep myself in line because my natural inclination is to just start preaching, you know, and, and say whatever. And I want, to, I want to do that and I want to talk about the gospel and about truth, but... That is a dangerous place to be in when you leave the process of expositing text verse by verse and start wandering off into all kinds of other things. But you know who loves it? Unbelievers. You know who loves it? Immature believers. And they eat it up. Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that they want itching ears. They want to hear what they want to hear. And I, I could probably tell them what they want to hear. We could grow this church to hundreds, 200 people, whatever. That is not at all my motivation. That is not at all what a biblical elder should be pursuing. And I say all of that because I think I could manufacture for you your belief that your life is good. That you're good. And then just preach over and over and over again. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave so that you could be saved. And you believe that. Amen. Amen. Everyone says. Then you're good. You're going to heaven. Uh, Mark, what about all the things we're supposed to do in our Christian life? Yeah, do them. Absolutely do them. For sure. But... Don't ever forget the fact that your eternal life is guaranteed, sealed. And that's all that matters. And then there's no pressing into your life. There's no involvement in your life. There's no teaching you sound doctrine. There's no taking you to the mat and wrestling with you like Jacob does with God himself. And wrestling with you in the word over doctrine. Over Wednesday night, a couple weeks ago, we're having a discussion. I'm like, this verse says this and that verse says that. And someone was like, I don't see it that way. And we were like, well, let's discover it. And we went at it together as a, as a united group, lovingly loving each other and discovering together what the word of God is telling us. 
It was a, it was a battle and a struggle, like a, like a good one. Like a, we were a team. It was awesome. It felt great. I love that. And I love pressing in your life. I love meeting you during the week and talking about what's going on in your life and the sin that you're struggling with. And I want you to bring your concerns to me. I want you to bring your prayer requests to me. I want you to bring your problems to me. I want to counsel you. I want to shepherd you. I want to love you. And I want to press into your life because I'm not okay with you not growing. I'm not. And if I am okay with it, I am evil. I am commanded. I read this last week, Hebrews 13, 17. I am commanded to be responsible for your spiritual well-being. If I don't press into your life, I am in sin. I can't avoid it. I have to. And you ought to be grateful that God has fixed that conviction in my heart and in my mind. Because it is for your good. Now there are people who don't like it. Because there are people who are either not genuinely converted, don't actually have faith in Christ, think they do. We call them false converts or maybe apostates, according to Hebrews 6. Um, And when you press into their life, the aim, the goal is not to expose that they're not saved so that they leave. It is to expose that they're not saved so that they would turn to Christ. And... For the immature believers, my objective is to dig into your life and help you grow out of faulty doctrine or immature doctrine and into what Hebrews 5 and 6 says, into greater things, into more mature, out of milk and into meat. And for the mature believers, my desire is to lead you to Christ, to develop in you characteristics and qualities that will help you step into roles that will help me lead this church. When I say me, I'm speaking of me as an elder and co-elder with Brian. So, there is going to be a shake-up in a church that is intentional about digging into your life. And the reality is, when that happens, people will rise up from those scenarios and they will throw accusations at elders. Therefore, the rest of the elders should not receive an accusation from any one person. Rather, the validity of an accusation against an elder would be taken seriously only when more than one person agrees with the complaint and all who recognize the elder's sin are willing to confront the elder together as witnesses. Meaning, one person can't go to the elders, make an accusation, and then say, oh, I know five other people who think this. This person was saying it, that person was saying it. Those five other people need to participate in the accusation to validate the complaint. Otherwise, it's just hearsay, which is gossip. It is a product of gossip, and it produces gossip. And that gossip and that hearsay is going to lead to division in the church. So back to what I was telling you, my experience a couple months ago when I received this phone call from this guy who says, you're these things, you're committing these sins. And I said, well, what is the actual sin? You can tell me I'm unloving, but what did I do that was unloving? And he did not have an answer. He said, well, you know, that was his answer. And I thought, well, that's, so I said, that doesn't make sense to me. And I said, my real issue though is like, you know, if you feel that that's how I'm behaving, I certainly don't want to be that way. So I will pay attention to it. Even though you haven't given me a specific example of it, I will try to be better um, or, or more loving. 
I said, but my issue here is the way you're going about it isn't biblical. This is not the biblical way to go about it. One person calls me to make an accusation against an elder, and I'm going, where's the other witnesses? And his response is, oh, they're everywhere. And I'm like, this isn't biblical, man. I'm like, fine, if you want to have an accusation, I'm all for it, but there, there isn't a, there, it is mandatory that the church go through this process. And what happens to, in this case, me, when they don't go through the biblical process, they didn't talk to me, they didn't pull me, they didn't ask for my side of the story, didn't, uh, uh, didn't actually have a, a specific accusation, but more of a general accusation without an example of exactly what, what happened, nor was the process at all done in a biblical manner, and, 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 and nor were two or three witnesses coming forward to make an accusation against an elder. And so I brought that up and said, none of this is, is, how can you think that the way you're going about this is right? And so... What happens when they do all of that? And I'm not even saying that their accusation's wrong. I'm just saying the way they're going about it is wrong. So I'm not trying to defend myself here. I'm saying the process they go through is wrong. What happens when they go through it that way? Hearsay, gossip, chatter, chatter, talk, busybodies. Oh, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Pastor Mark, or Grace Church, or this, or that, or this, or that person, whatever. And what do I hear? Him telling me? That's exactly what's happening. I'm going, and you think this is good? This isn't good for the church, man. High tide raises all ships. What do you think Jesus looks like when the church is running around telling the church, telling, when the church is running around telling non-Christians what the church is like? Oh, that church is bad. Oh, that pastor is bad. Oh, that guy's and this guy, and that lady, and this. That's ugly and disgusting. And it makes Jesus look bad. Who cares what it makes us look like, or me look like, or you look like? The church—it makes Jesus look bad. That's sin, and you can see what happens. And so I got to see firsthand when people don't follow the biblical processes of dealing with things. In this particular case, addressing the sin of an elder in a church, and they don't go about it in a biblical way. It creates chaos. It creates. And then I got a phone call from another pastor telling me, hey, just so you know, those very people who are saying those things about you have a little group. They get together every week and they literally just talk trash about you. And I'm like, how is it that this group can feel like this is a healthy thing? They need to find texts like these and get in line. Okay, listen, guys, let's meet. Instead of ragging on another church or a pastor or a person or a group or whatever, what if instead... We followed scripture and we formally brought a complaint to the leadership and said, here's our, we got, there's, there's three of us or five of us or 10 of us or two of us. And we have seen this behavior. We don't think it's healthy. We'd like the elders to deal with it. That would be so good. But you can see what happens when people's lives are dealt with, when elders and leaders in church Leadership presses into your life. It creates tension in people and they become disgruntled. They don't like it. They don't want to receive it. So they push back at it. That's been my experience. There's a lot of other possibilities there too. Like gloriously responding to that accusation with repentance. And, you know, even if you don't believe you did it. You You know how many times I've apologized? And not just me. I've seen you guys do it too. I've seen you guys do it. Apologize 
or make amends or reconcile in a situation where I believe or you believe that you weren't wrong. But you're like, that doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. That's not the point. The point is that I'm humble and I love this person and I'm gonna seek reconciliation with them because that's what the gospel is. It's a gospel of reconciliation. So it is mandatory that when we make an accusation against an elder, it is done with two or three witnesses. That is so important. It protects the church and it protects the elder as well. Now, the type of sin that Paul is talking about here isn't clarified for us, but we can get some hints from the text that this is regarding sin that would not immediately disqualify this man from eldership. Okay, we're not talking about, you know, obviously major sins that would be like you should not be in leadership at all. There are certainly sins that people might observe that definitely disqualify an elder from his leadership role. But based on verse 20, it seems that Paul is referring to here to sins that an elder can repent of and then continue in his role as elder. And this elder is afforded this honor through the process of verifying and validating sin by having multiple witnesses to his sin. So to ensure that the position that he has earned by God's grace through a rigorous life of spiritual growth into maturity that qualifies him for church leadership isn't thrown out the window at the mention of just any accusation of sin or faulty teaching that he does. So once that accusation is made, he's not automatically guilty. A process must start where they discover the truth. The elders have to look into those accusations. There's this due process that ensures that the elder is protected in his due honor, which Paul just told us about, which is why Paul is now talking about this. He's saying a way to honor him is to afford for him an assumption of guiltlessness when you bring a sin accusation against him. Because this man that you're accusing of sin qualified for eldership according to chapter 3, which is a very high standard. So since he already meets that standard, we're going to assume the best in him. We're going to receive your accusation if it is done appropriately with the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then we're going to take it from there and we're going to deal with it from there. And the other elders will step into that elder's life and address the sin and talk about it and figure things out. And, And Paul does not get into those details. And if the elder is found guilty and he admits to sin or error, that does not automatically mean he's removed from eldership. That totally depends on the sin. It it depends on what he's done and if he continues to do it or doesn't continue to do it, if he's repentant or not repentant. If his sin disqualifies him from the requirements of chapter 3, then he is removed from eldership. And how he responds, if guilty, is a major role And what comes of that elder? If his sin is minor, and I say minor, let's realize that all sins lead to death, okay? Um, But minor in the sense that it doesn't disqualify him according to the requirements of chapter three. If he is... If his sin is minor in that sense and, is, and he is genuinely repentant, then he may be able to remain an elder depending on what the other elders discover in that process. So basically what I'm getting at here is that Paul is giving us a general rule. He's not being specific. General rule on how to deal with an accusation against an elder and the responsibility of the other elders to take it from there. And that requires their spiritual maturity and their spiritual knowledge to be stout and wise. And it requires that the people who are bringing an accusation do it as a group. 
that there be plenty of evidence for this accusation. And what this does is it protects the elder himself. It maintains the double honor that he is due, and it protects the congregation itself from lobbying random accusations at church leadership whenever they want. So it protects everybody. And in a minute, we'll talk about what it mostly protects. So I think the application for you is to be wise in your awareness of sin and especially be wise in how you go about addressing the sin of others. You hear what I'm saying? Be wise in your awareness of sin, meaning be aware of sin, but be wise in your awareness of sin and be wise in how you address the sin that you're aware of, especially when that sin is in someone else. Considering what Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. Careful that our judgment is discernment, not condemnation. So it is important, I think, as you, for you, the church, for your motivation in accusing an elder of sin, that it should always be driven by your love for that man. And also for your love for the gospel and your love for the glory of God and your love for the church. Love should motivate your accusation of sin against an elder. Love. And anything less than love is wicked and evil and divisive and destructive and defiant and disobedient. Your motivation must be love. And that motivation of love will show up in the process. Your motivation should be the benefit and the good of the elder to see him become holy and not motivated just to see this guy get kicked out. And your motivation should always be to magnify the gospel because that's what's driving what you're doing. You look at the church, you say, this guy's a leader. I love the gospel, the gospel that he preaches and, and, and the gospel he's supposed to represent. But I see sin in his life. And my concern is that the gospel we love is going to look tainted by this guy's sin because of his role. And I love him and I love the gospel and I love the church. I have to deal with this. So I need to gather up my resources and my witnesses and lovingly approach this man and go, hey, we love you and I just want you to see what we're seeing. This isn't a, like an opposition case. Paul's not like, hey, make sure that if you see an elder sinning, you get a couple of witnesses and you kick his door down and you bust in that church and you tell those elders how they ought to be. And you set that church straight. You let everyone know that you're the good one who sees what's really going on here. It's not Paul's motivation at all. Love for the gospel, love for the church, love for that man and fixing him. His sanctification should motivate you. The glory of the gospel as he re- that he represents ought to motivate you. Your motivation should always be to magnify the gospel. So your accusation should always be driven by doctrinal purity and holiness and righteousness and love, not self-righteousness. Careful. Addressing other people's sin because you are not perfect. <laughs> that is, and that concept of how we deal with other people's sin in relationship to our own is its own series, let alone its own sermon. So all I'll say about it now is just be careful, be wise. And what Paul is saying is be exceptionally careful and wise when it's an elder. 
Because Paul just established they're worthy of double honor. They've proven themselves to be righteous, holy, and godly men because they've been, they've passed the test to, of, of 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 to get into that role. You assume their righteousness. Therefore, these accusations need to be mitigated in a particular way. And then we get to verse 20. And Paul says, and for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, if an elder is found guilty of sin, that immediately disqualifies him from eldership. So let's say adultery, fornication, something like that, or he has a contentious and vexing wife. That immediately disqualifies him from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he's to be removed from eldership based on his disqualification. Like, so there are things that an elder could do that are sin that are listed as qualifications in chapter 3 that if he does not do or breaks or whatever, is immediately removed, not as punishment, but as doctrinal purity for the sake of the health of the church and the purity of the gospel revealed in the church and to obey God's word. These elders have to not only pass this litmus test, this requirement list in chapter 3, they have to maintain it as well. Now, there are some things in here. For example, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that uh, an elder has to be gentle. Well, what does gentle look like? I mean, at what point are you not gentle? Do you have to be perfectly gentle? Well, no one's perfectly gentle. Um, so at what point is my imperfect gentleness too much harshness or violence that I'm not qualified to be an elder? Where's the line? Well, we're not, it's not drawn for us here. So there's things like that where it's like, well, maybe an elder's being too harsh. He's not being gentle. He's being violent. Well, what point is that violence or, or, or harshness too much? Or how do you know? And then at what point does someone go, well, I'm starting to see that as sin. So there's a lot of nuance here that isn't explicitly declared. Remember, Paul's being general here, which requires that the other elders who also qualify for eldership based on 1 Timothy 3 are the very men that they qualify to be. They are mature and wise and godly and biblically knowledgeable, able to teach, loving Compassionate, caring, kind, above reproach, not drunkards, able to teach, gentle, not quarrelsome, and sober-minded, managing their house well, not arrogant, humble, well thought of, respectable, all of those things. Those are the men who get to determine how are we going to deal with this accusation that's just been thrown at another elder. And that's where the church is protected and the eldership is protected and the people are protected. By that process, having elders who have already gone through qualifying to be elders who are then going to determine how are we going to handle this particular situation. He just got accused of this particular sin. Does that disqualify him according to 1 Timothy 3 or does it not? The text does not seem to indicate that what Paul is talking about here, that this elder is found of guilty, needs to be removed from eldership. So it seems like Paul is talking about sins that, that don't disqualify an elder according to chapter 3. 
And so when Paul says in verse 20, those who persist in sin, he does not mean that those who were accused, confronted by their witnesses and the elders, and then, and then counted guilty, and then they disregarded that sin, and disregarded the, the confrontation, and disregarded the accusation, refused to repent, and continue living in their sin anyways. That's not who he's talking about. He's not saying, okay, now that this has been dealt with, if they continue to do it, this is how you respond. The, the, the words, those who persist in sin, is simply a reference to the sinning elder of whom the people are making their accusation. So what Paul is really saying in verse 20 is that for, elder, for the elder who is accused of sin and confronted for the sin, he is to be rebuked for that sin in the presence of all. So who is all? Well, all, the presence of all, refers to the presence of the elders, not the presence of the entire congregation. If an elder is in a disqualifying sin and needs to be removed from eldership, it would be a congregational situation. Or the elder would be, it would be known to the congregation that the elder is no longer an elder and maybe here are the reasons why or depending on the circumstance. Uh, but in this case, Paul is referring to the necessity of the elders to hate sin and love righteousness. He's talking about eldership, which is in this love for righteousness, this hatred for sin is a requirement for an elder. And the elder who's found guilty of not upholding that requirement in this case isn't doing isn't doing something as immediately disqualifying as living in like an adulterous relationship, which would be immediate disqualification. Rather, he is probably teaching something faulty or, or maybe he's just been maybe just a little too harsh in his address of things or, you know, sin, but sin that doesn't immediately disqualify or something that is essentially correctable. And I hate to use this word again, but like a minor sin, because I don't really think that any sin is minor. It's an offense to God. It's major, period. But minor in a practical sense. Minor in its repercussions and implications in our real life. So therefore, due to the major exception that the elder live above reproach, Timothy, or the lead elder, or the pastor, is to rebuke this sinning elder in the presence of just the other elders. Why? Verse 20, so that the rest of the elders may stand in fear. Because Paul's objective here is to solidify for the elders a hatred for sin and a love for righteousness. He can't be talking about the congregation to show the congregation, hey, this is what we do to elders, because the congregation are not elders. So it's not in the presence of all the congregation, it's in the presence of the elders to assure that the elders themselves know and are aware and are stand in fear of this is how we deal with sin. And not just this is how we're going to deal with your sin, but this is the importance of eldership. It is our responsibility to hate sin. It is our responsibility to kill sin. It is our responsibility as elders to uphold truth and to uphold righteousness and to take it seriously. And we're going to do that so much so that we're going to rebuke an elder in the presence of the other elders to show those elders we mean business. We care about the church. We care about the glory of God. We care about the truth of God's word. We have to obey this book. We don't get to not to. We don't get to not obey it. We have to. And so we're going to take God's word seriously and we're going to address this sin and we're going to rebuke this elder in the presence of all. So it is likely then that this elder, assuming he is repentant, remains an elder. And in many cases, he won't. In some cases, he will. That all depends on the situation. If he is not repentant, he would be disqualified. Even if he stole a pack of gum 
Hey, man, you stole a pack of gum. It's sin. No, I didn't. And I refused to listen to you. You are disqualified as an elder. Like, and that was a way faster process than it would probably be. But, like, you get my point. It's the unrepentance. It's the same process we have in the church for the congregation that Paul teaches us in many places in Scripture. That it is the lack of repentance. It's not the fact that you sin that gets people church disciplined and removed from congregations. It's the fact that they sin, that sin is addressed more than once, three times according to Titus 3.10, and still refuse to repent. And still refuse to change. And still remain defiant and disobedient. That's when that action takes place. And so it's the same process within the eldership. The elders are held to a much higher standard than the rest of the congregation. So the onus on them is even greater for righteousness. And their need for humble repentance should be automatic. And chances are, if they're a godly elder who met the requirements for chapter 3, they probably will. Because... They have probably, well, they ought to have been, because that's one of the standards, is that they've been, an elder, they've been a believer for a long time. Paul says they can't be a recent convert. So they've been a believer for a while, which means they've probably gone through a very serious sanctifying process by God in their life, and they probably have learned humility. And they've probably been called out on their sin before, and that's why they're mature. That's how they've grown. They mature into Christ-likeness through that humility. They've been confronted before. This isn't new to them. They're godly men. They've been chiseled a million times. So they know how to respond. Humble, broken, repentant, desiring restoration. Desiring to show the glory of God's forgiveness by admitting, yes, I, I did sin and I ask that you forgive me and I humbly repent and I should probably go through a a, a little season of, you know, restoration before I continue to lead an eldership or something like that. That's the kind of response a godly elder is going to have if he's caught in sin. And the reality is, like I said before, if you're looking for sin in your elders, you don't have to look very hard. The reason I brought up that John Piper thing before is because what John Piper revealed is that the people who are closest to him see the sin in his life. Everyone thinks John Piper is this amazing godly man. Well, he is a godly man, of course, but John Piper knows he's a, a wicked, evil man in his sinful nature, only that he's redeemed by Christ. Is he a new creation? Is he something new, something good? And he's aware of how his sin creeps out. So how does he stay in check? He stays around people regularly. Who are like, bro, that's sin. I got people in my life who are like, that's not okay. I'm like, ah, okay. Sorry. (laughs) You know? And who does it the most? Probably my wife. (laughs) And I, I don't mean that as a joke, although it is funny to me. But I don't mean that as a joke because who is going to best be able to identify your sin? The people who know you best. Joel and I spend every Thursday afternoon from 1.30 to 3 o'clock together. He's going to see my sin before you do. And I'm going to see his before you do. We need those relationships for that very thing. And you know what? When he sees it, he's going to go, hey, Mark, can I just talk to you? I see this thing. I, I notice this, like, the way you say this or this behavior. And I'm just wondering if it's coming from this. And 
I don't want to see that, you know, keep me in check. And I'll do the same to him. And we do that for each other. That's discipleship. That's what we need in the church, to hold each other accountable, to press into each other's lives. The take-home for you is that as a congregation, you must hold the elders accountable to sin, but to do so with the assumption that they are godly men with honor for their role and within the guidelines of what Paul establishes in this text. That will ensure that your means of holding elders accountable doesn't give you a false sense of authority over God's called church leader, and it ensures that the elders will will rule well. Yes, you should hold your elders accountable. Even though, biblically, your elders do not submit to your authority or your accusations, necessarily. However, Ephesians 5.21 says, Every Christian should submit themselves to every other Christian out of reverence for Christ. So if you, my brother or sister in Christ, come to me, an elder in the church, and you say, I see sin in your life. And I go, who are you to talk to an elder that way? It's not submitting to you out of reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ would be humble and go, thank you. It doesn't matter if I'm the elder and you're not. Our authority role here is just, it's still there, but that's not the reason we're talking. What we're talking about right now is killing sin. Because we both hate sin and we love righteousness and we love Christ. We want to glorify the gospel. We want to magnify Jesus. We want to be obedient to God. So yes, I receive that. And your approach needs to give that elder his due honor. That's the whole point. And when we all fill our roles that way, even when an elder is sinning, the church grows. And the gospel is magnified. And restoration is done. And forgiveness is seen. We see all these elements of the gospel truth pouring out in those situations. And this, this dual protection, right? There's this dual protection This rule plays two parts at once. It protects the elders from gossip and from flippant and false accusations, while it also protects the church from being led by men who are in persistent sin. And so this dual protection, what happens is it is automatically protecting the gospel. By protecting the congregation and by protecting the elders, it protects the gospel. Because what is the church? It's the elders plus the people. And what are the elders? The people. The elders are the sheep. You're the sheep. We're all sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. Period. I'm a sheep, and I'm wearing a shepherd hat for a little bit to look like Jesus. And I'm like, hey, guys, Jesus sent me. He gave me a hat that says shepherd. He's the real shepherd. He's just telling me what to do. I'm just relaying information here. He gave me a role and an authority to do things. But I'm just like you. We're all just sheep. I'm just as held, held just as accountable for my sin and just as accountable for knowing the gospel and just as accountable for growth and just as you are but he's telling me what to tell you so i'm just telling you well where's he telling you from well from the bible okay so who's in charge then christ so who who's really at what's really at stake here the image of christ in the holiness of the elders and the way that the church goes about addressing sin and eldership 
So what's really at stake is the gospel. The image and glory of Christ in the church requires that the church be holy. And this rule follows that requirement for holiness by ensuring that both the people and the elders are properly identifying sin and properly dealing with sin. By following this rule, both a severity of sin and its consequences are upheld while the church projects the grace of God in Christ into the situation. Meaning... Both sin and grace are taken seriously. Sin is dealt with, but it is done by God's grace when it is done God's way, as Paul just prescribed. So, the church operating according to this command not only protects the elders, and it not only protects the what Paul just tells in verses 17 and 18, which is that the elders get the benefit of the doubt for honor, and it not only protects the people, you, but it also protects the gospel. It protects the image of the gospel, it protects the grace of the gospel, protects the gospel's hatred for sin and love for righteousness. It protects the holiness of Christ in the body of Christ. And when God's gospel is properly conveyed, Through the church's adherence to this command, God is glorified and that his gospel is magnified. Because what do you see when sin is addressed with two or three witnesses? An elder is confronted. He hears the accusation, admits his sin, repents of his sin, is broken, broken by the wickedness that is within him, hates that sin within him, and repents and the humility and the brokenness comes from the recognition that without Christ, I am, this would send me to hell. And then what happens? The people, they say, you're forgiven in his repentant humility. And what happens? He's restored. Relationships are restored. And what has just happened? You have just lived the gospel. Recognize your sin, confronted by your sin. There's a judgment for your sin that is crushed by the forgiveness of God so you don't bear the weight of that sin. You are humbled by that reality. You respond to the gospel and receive that forgiveness and you are broken and humbled and restored. That's the gospel. That's how we show the gospel when we sin. Let's stop walking around with two by fours and breaking people's faces open with their sin. Just walking around like, hey, sin, bam! Crushing people's souls. Love, gentleness, and kindness, and patience, and understanding, and self-control, and doing, addressing sin in the way that Scripture prescribes. I guarantee you, if I asked you, hey, one-on-one, identify for me a sin that you think might be in my life. Maybe you have actually seen it. You say, I know it's a sin in your life. Or, or identify for me as an elder in your church a sin that you think might exist based on some behavior you've seen or words you've... I bet you could find something. I bet someone could go, oh, I know, I know, one, I know one right now. Can I talk about it? Like, you could probably do that. You could probably do it with me. You could probably do it with Brian. The point is that you're running around looking for those things. The point is that we are looking to exalt the gospel 
to uphold the gospel, to preach the gospel, teach the gospel, and now through this, live the gospel. So to convey and project the gospel, because I get my living on the gospel, you get your eternal life on the gospel, and Jesus is the gospel. And if our life is all about Christ, it should be all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether we're talking about our sin or anything else, We cannot go bashing each other over our sin. We have to do it biblically for the sake of the gospel. And why do we do it for the sake of the gospel? Because what is at stake? It's God's glory and your joy in him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We could not not be sinless without you. We are not currently sinless, but we are capable of righteousness. We are capable by the power of your spirit through Christ to reject the choice to sin and we are capable by the power of the Holy Spirit to choose righteousness. And so with your spirit alive and actively working in us, we ask that you would create in us a hatred for sin to destroy our sin and a love for righteousness to pursue righteousness. And the way that we go about that for each other, as we deal with sin in each other's life, we pray that this would be done lovingly, graciously, kindly, gently, with a motivation to see Christ exalted, to see people restored, to see righteousness lived out. We pray all this be done by you and for you and through you because we cannot. So we're desperate for you to sanctify this church. We know you'll do it at a pace that works for your plan and will for this body. So we trust you now. And I pray that in this room, all of us would willingly choose right now, willingly say in their heart and in their mind, I will submit myself to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, God, we ask that you act on that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.